We ain't too proud to beg. 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 That we ain't too proud to beg. We ain't too proud to beg. That we ain't too proud to beg. Um, that's just um a little teaser um for the uh, wonderful um Broadway show. Ain't too proud, uh, which uh, highlights the story of. The Temptations, and we are so happy today to have on Wanda's Picks radio show uh, Elijah Ahmed Lewis, who's portraying David Ruffin. Good morning. How are you? <laughs> Hi, good. It's Elijah Ahmad Lewis. Oh, Ahmad. Okay, yes. Great to I'm have good, you though. with How us. You? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. Yes. Sometimes people put the emphasis on the. Eight, so thank you for correcting me. I appreciate it. So you are on a tour, and I think this is what your third or fourth stop. No, this is now our. Oof. We're we're deep into the tour. We're about a year, a year and a half into the tour now. Okay, okay, yeah, I was looking at the cities, and I thought this was like the fourth one um, this year. Um, but anyway. Wow, wow, you've been touring this a while then. So tell our audience about um, Ain't Too Proud, The Life and Times of the Temptations, and and your character, David Ruffin. And then I'll, I'll read a little bit of your bio. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a fabulous story, um, really important story, um, and I'm really happy that you all are bringing it to the San Francisco, and it opens today. <laughs> yes, 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 it does. Uh, Ain't You Proud, The Life and Times of the Temptation is an amazing story uh, that was written by Dominic Morisot, our book writer, um, about these men, uh, these brothers, these young men who had a dream of being singers, of being in the entertainment industry, and, you know, um, who achieved that goal. I always say this story is kind of like the American story of going for what you want, having obstacles and challenges that you have to deal with and face, but also overcoming those challenges um, and getting to the end goal. Uh, We take you through a long line, uh, starting from the 60s, well, prior to that, but uh, we take you through the decades of dissertation through the uh, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, and um, how they overcame and how they each went through different things in their life that made them who they are and how they overcame those obstacles and gave this great music that is now a part of the uh, soundtrack of our lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, you are um, a multi-award winning singer, actor, songwriter, and arranger, and you've appeared on Broadway in Motown, uh, this Tony Award winning Ain't Too Proud, um, 
and you've also toured Motown, um, first and second national. Mama, I Want to Sing in Japan, uh, and in television and film, uh, Power Book 3, uh, Raising Canon, or is it, is it Canon? Is that how you pronounce it? No, Raising Canon, yeah. Caden, right. Uh, B-Boy Blues, um, Mama, I Want to Sing, America, starring Rosie O'Donnell, uh, the Grammys, um, Music, uh, SZA, uh, Chance the Rapper, uh, Ariana Grande, um, James J.T. Taylor, and Sissy Houston, and Madonna, and um, and your website, um, uh, Elijah Ahmad, um, com shows you have, like, you're doing a whole lot. I mean, like a whole, whole lot. <laughs> you've got albums. You've got a project getting ready to drop next year, beginning, I don't know, beginning of next year. You've you've done some things around gospel. You do things with youth. Um, yeah, you're, you've got a, you're an entrepreneur. You've got a line of stuff. Like, I don't know if it's clothing or what. Anyway, you're like, heck, yeah. baby, how do you fit touring, like, for multiple years? Where, when do you do all these things? How <laughs> uh, you do it? As you gotta do it while you're on the road. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I've been uh, I've been blessed to uh, have my hand in a few different things. I've been in entertainment since I was seven, a very young age. Um, and coming from an entertainment family, uh, I was always exposed to a lot, and you know, I had my hand in different things, and fortunate enough to be able to sustain these things um, while working. But uh, doing this tour at a very crucial, important time right now in our climate, in our world climate, I think it's pretty important uh, for the story to be told. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was a, um, and I'll play it a little later on, uh, maybe um, maybe somewhere like right in the middle of our conversation, but um, the song I'm Losing You, um, I was looking at, you know, some outtakes from uh from the play and uh and that particular one um the the cast who's singing talk about sort of the political what's going on politically during the time of of this this um this group's um heyday and and yeah. and we could say some of the same things now <laughs> you know like i mean it's kind Absolutely. of you know the serendipity of the moment like we're in presently and here you are you know, you know, touring this particular uh, story, and it it, has, it resonates so well again and continues, which is what's so beautiful about art. You know that it's it, it the truth of it never grows stale or old. It's always relevant. So, if you could talk yeah. a little bit about that and and how how the uh, um, the performances have been received over the past year or so. Uh, they've been great, you know, um, touring with this show. Coming from the Broadway show, you know, I always say people know what they're probably going to come see when they come to Broadway. Um, you know, but when you tour with a show to different markets and different um, creeds and different backgrounds, and, you know, it's always interesting to see how people receive it, but it's always well-received. Um, I think that uh, this story brings highlight to a lot of things that have happened in the past that unfortunately are reoccurring uh, right now in our society today. Uh, And unfortunately, history repeats itself, but, you know, it's proven on paper and, you know, showing through this show that um, this is not the first time we've dealt with these things and that hopefully uh, we can bring a light to the end of the tunnel to end some of these things that are happening, um, but to also shed highlight onto this amazing music, uh, this feel-good music that Barry Gordy spoke of. He wanted to make feel-good music for everyone. Was it wasn't race music. It wasn't black or white music. It was music that would bring everyone together. And I think that at the end of the day, you know, with where we are in our society, that that's all we really want. Everyone always wants to be loved and accepted. Um, you know, that's the bare root of it all. Uh, but one universal language that is amazing is music, and it always brings people together. Mm-hmm. Yes, and you mentioned that um, that you've been performing since, I think you said, seven, and that you come from a musical family. And I noticed in your your um, 
your gratitude statements, you you thank your family and your team, and you also um, uh, thank your mentor and friend, uh, Cicely Tyson, and you say you dedicate your performances to her. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, sort of, you know, um, who is it? Who's Elijah? You know, Ahmad Lewis. Um, you know, sort of. What were you eating? Like, what was what was what's the ground that you know grew you <laughs> into the you you are now? Yes. Uh, well, my family, like I said, is an entertainment. My dad uh, is a musician and music producer, um, and my mother, you know, works in graphic design and marketing. Uh, my uncle is uh, J.T. Taylor from Cool and the Gang, uh, the voice of Cool and the Gang, and. Uh, growing up, I, I always was exposed to uh, so many people and so many outlets. Um, you know, uh, Sissy Houston, uh, she was my vocal teacher uh, for a few years. Uh, Vi Higginson, who was my godmother and manager, um, who was the CEO and operator of the Mama Foundation for the Arts, which is a school of the gospel, jazz, and R&B arts in Harlem, New York which is also a musical school and program that I went to where I further developed my um, my education in music and in performance. Um, and then going to Miss Tyson's high school, um, I was very fortunate enough to work side by side with her and to work under her and learn under her. Um, and she passed away in 2019. And, um, you know, we we had become really close, and I had shared with her this show and my process with it and different things that were happening. So, you know, when she passed, it was right before I went on this tour, and I did uh, tell her that this was coming, and she knew that this was coming, and she was always rooting for me in my corner. So, yes, I, I do dedicate this tour to her help and her mentorship and everything that she's deposited in me uh, before she graciously left this world. Oh, wow, you went to her high school? Oh, my gosh, I remember when I read her her book <laughs> and about yes. how that high school came to be and how she was resistant because a high school named after me? Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Wow, that is so awesome. And and are you, um, did you grow up in Harlem? I grew up in New Jersey um, and back okay. and forth in Harlem because I was uh, with the uh, Mama Foundation for the Arts. And then um, once I became a junior director in their program, um, I was just always back and forth between Harlem and New Jersey. So Harlem is my uh, home also. Mm, mm-hmm. Yes, yes. <laughs> How awesome. Um, so talk about talk about the uh, the fraternity, you know, these 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 men, you know, these five men um <laughs> who um you know, who who formed a bond, you know, artistic and and loving bond together to 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 bring this music to the community and to the world and and what a lasting legacy that that has been. I mean, you know, yeah. like you said, it makes you feel good like you you hear these songs and and it just sort of takes you to these places, even if you're, you know, weren't even around, you know, then. Because, you know, this was a while back and some people are coming to, <laughs> ain't too proud, you know, without background or historic background yeah. in their bodies because they weren't born, <laughs> you, know? Yeah. you know. But they're the still moved. Thing, mm-hmm. Yeah, the great thing about this show is that it is timeless, just like the music, mm-hmm. um, you know. Like I said, Mr. Gordy wanted to make feel-good music for all people, so wanted to make music that everyone can relate to and everyone can sing to and dance to and have a great time to. You know, these guys were just friends who went to school together, who sang on the corner together, you know, who had a passion for music and who had a dream to do something bigger with that and given the opportunity to, you know, sing in front of Mr. Gordy and be signed to Motown and you know, after all the group names they went through to get to the Temptations, you know, they were brothers. They were a family. And, you know, what family doesn't have ups and downs and trials and ins and outs, you know? But I think the great thing about the story is that they persevered through it and overcame it. And yes, you know, there were some downfalls and some, you know, deaths because of certain things and certain uh, choices in life that they made. But 
they were always for each other. No matter how much they got in each other's nerves or what they did, you know, they knew what the end goal was. They knew what the what the foundation was. And building a strong foundation will always sustain the test of time. Um, and I think it's just quite amazing that now Otis Williams, who's the last living member, who just turned 81 and who is still on tour with the Temptations, who just released an album celebrating their 60th anniversary, I think that is quite an honor and, and quite a lesson to be told of, you know, how you can stand the test of time with truth. Mr. Gordy has another saying that the truth is a hit. And, you know, all they wanted to do was tell the truth through music, and that's what they did, and that's what sustained, and that's what became the permanent, um, you know, trajectory of landscape of our music. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. So um, tell us about um, David Eli Ruffin, um, who is, you know, um, he's the lead voice and ain't too proud to beg, and my girl. <laughs> um <laughs> And so, yeah, tell us about about um, you know your character and um, and and it's, you know like was he the was this the character that you had auditioned for like you really wanted to portray and so how does that resonate for you um, if that's the case I mean obviously you're you know you're portraying him now I just wanted you to talk a little bit about about your character and you know so sort of how how that works in your person as as actor to bring him up, you know? Yeah. Um, he was an <laughs> David Ruffin was an amazing front showman. He was the greatest front male showman of the lead group at all. And uh, he kind of set the bar for everyone who followed. Um, I think it is not a coincidence that his middle name is Eli and my name is Elijah. Um, you know, I, I feel that you know, there are certain similarities and connections and how we perform and how we are showmen. Um, I was a principal standby on Broadway. I came from the Broadway company of the show where I covered the roles of David Ruffin, Eddie Kendricks, and Otis Williams. Um, but now I'm just playing David Ruffin on the tour. And um, it's it's amazing. It's It's such an emotional arc of a journey through the show. And and what he went through, he he was he grew up in the church just like I did, and and sang and sang with his brother, um, and you know everyone goes through challenges, everyone has ups and downs, everyone you know goes through things in their life where you know it may take you down a different road and trajectory a path in your life. Uh, I think the interesting part of that time was you know when people went through things, they didn't have anyone to go to. They didn't have, you know, a therapist or they didn't have that help to uh, that you needed. Uh, you know, it was a difficult time growing up in those times, and I really believe that he did the best of what he can do. Um, you know, everyone always wants to make him the villain and, you know, wants to make him the villain of the temptations. And I, you know, feel the responsibility to show his humanity and his human side and, to show that he's human like everyone. Everyone makes mistakes. Everyone, you know, makes choices in life that are always not the best. But, you know, we try to bounce back from them and we try to overcome them, and that's exactly what he did. Um, I think a lot of people focus on the negative parts of his life more than the rewarding and great parts of his life of the icon that he is. And I would just love to shed light on his humanity and what he did do for this music landscape. Mm. Yeah, wow. That sounds um that sounds kind of challenging because um it sounds like people who might know your character sort of come to the work with some certain preconceptions maybe that you um dispel over the course of the evening yeah. or the afternoon. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the great power of being an actor. Um, mm-hmm. you know, give work that we've gotten from Dominique Morisot, the book writer, and Des Mackinac, who's our director, you know, you get that information from them, and as an actor, you digest it. And like I said, Barry Gordy said the truth is a hit, so I try to tell the truth and what I've done as an actor and done the work, and um, I try to exude. I never try to imitate or copy. I just try to embody and portray and, and to pay homage to the spirit of them. You know, I can never be David Ruffin. No one can ever be David Ruffin. No one can ever be these characters, so we can pay homage to them. 
in the truth and the light that we have done the work as actors to bring that truth to the audience every night. Mm-hmm. Is is this difficult? Um, this task um, that you have set for yourself around um, the work um, that we're you're, you're, uh, we're talking about presently and this character in particular. Uh, this is a hard show. It is a mm-hmm. big show. It's a very um, fast-paced, moving show, but it's a very rewarding show. You know, I I think the great and interesting thing about this is that we are carrying the legacy of the Temptations. So we are doing things that they did. We are doing the choreography that they've done and basically living their life through this theater stage. Um, It is difficult, but it's rewarding. You know, what isn't difficult? I feel like things that are too comfortable, you know, you don't grow in um, when you're complacent or when you're idle. Um, And, you know, being a part of this show and doing these Tony Award-winning choreography moves is it's honoring. It's, it's a blessing and an honor to be able to stand on the stage and pay homage to these icons who changed our musical landscape and to tell the story in front of people who've lived this. And, you know, mm. there are, like you said, people who are coming new to this and they may hear some of the Temptations music and some of the samples today in music, but to now be able to come to the show and see where the original has come from, I think, is a great musical uh, education also, as well as it being entertaining and also being fun to hear. Mm, certainly, certainly. Um, so if you could talk about um, this cast is huge, and there's a lot of black folks working, literally. <laughs> I wonder if you could talk about you know some of the other uh, members of the cast and um, and maybe uh, maybe share uh, some scenes you don't have to be be in them that um, that you just love for whatever reason you're gonna share. Yeah, we have an amazing cast. Um, the lineup uh, of the five classics: uh, Marcus Paul James, who is a great friend of mine, who has been in so many things. Uh, he was in the original company of Rent and has been in so many shows. Uh, James T. Lane, who is mm. also a Broadway, who's been in so many shows in Chicago and Scottsboro Boys and uh, Fame. Uh, we have Eddie, uh, a guy who plays Eddie Kendrick, Jalen Harris, um, who's in Lion King, and he also was in the show uh, Lovecraft on HBO. And and Harrell, who plays Melvin, um, this is his first show, but he has been a temptation since he's been a little boy. He was a part of the Little Temptations. He was on Star Search, and the Temptations is his group. So this is a dream come true to him. And, you know, uh, with myself, us all together, you know, we, we have such an amazing bond, and the rest of our cast is just amazing artists uh, that have come together to tell the story. Um it's it's pretty amazing to work with uh, some fine people. You know, Broadway can always pull some great people together. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but it's <laughs> definitely an amazing show and um, predominantly all-black cast, uh, which is also amazing, too, just to tell this amazing story that I think is will be a historical show, you know, down the line. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's definitely historic. <laughs> uh, certainly, certainly, and um, and I was just, you know, when I when I saw the um, uh, just sort of the teasers, I was like, oh, there are women in here. I didn't remember. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. It is. It is a male-driven show. Uh, speaking, mm-hmm. you know, of being a male group, yes. but mm-hmm. we, women, we highlight on the Supremes. We highlight on uh, Josephine, who was Otis's uh, girlfriend, and, um, you know, just Tammy Terrell, who is my girlfriend in the show. And we we have female presenting, and, 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 and um, we have the uh, essence of the females in our show. And our women are amazing, and they play all these characters so well. Uh, Johnny May, who was the... Uh, Temptation's first manager, you know, we highlight on all these things and all this, the feminine power that also did help the Temptations, you know, it just wasn't all testosterone, <laughs> uh, you know, that estrogen that also helped 
in the process too. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yeah. I I think um, you know when uh, when there is a a show that you know just sort of celebrates blackness and and you know black art and black excellence. You know, it's just it just just yeah. just like. It just does something to you, you know. <laughs> Before you even open your mouth and sing the first song, it's like, and then and then like you mentioned the choreography. That's what we remember about the Temptations. Like they were so oh, smooth. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I think that you know also part of the story is that black excellence has been around for. It's not something that has just come. It's not something that is being birthed right now. It is mm-hmm. something that's always. And we've always held ourselves to that, and it's great to show that that's what it's always been, and that's what it will always continue to be. Mm, mhm, mhm. Yeah, yeah. So, in our closing few minutes, um, any scenes you want to like highlight for whatever reason, like oh, this one, da 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 da, or maybe maybe there's a scene that's difficult for whatever reasons. Um, I don't want to give too much away, but there is a bus scene. Uh, it's one of the parts in the show where um, the Temptations are on the road and, you know, they had just finished the Ed Sullivan show and they were shot at. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it is a very uh, cringe, I would say for me, cringe-worthy scene because um, all of the police brutality and things that are happening now um, you know, with our African American men being shot and killed, you know, for them to be shot at at the time when they were rising and and in the prime of who they were in the group in the world, and to still be uh, shot at, you know, that is something very traumatizing and something that, you know, like I said, history is repeating itself. Unfortunately, um, mm-hmm. and that scene just depicts what truly happened to them, but also it's a mirror to now. And, you know, we would hope that when people see this scene that they will see the parallel of what's happening. And, you know, I, I, I like I said, music is the universal language, and I would hope that the show, as we're touring and, you know, we have another uh, leg of the tour to go, that people would be, changed and, and their mindset would be changed and their hearts would be changed. Um, and to realize that as a society, we are more alike than than not. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the color of your skin should not have any form of weight to whether you're accepted or not or whether you are worthy or not. Um, I think this show also brings to a light, like I said, that we are more alike than a party. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Well, congratulations on, um, you know, on the tour, and and we're so happy to have uh, "Ain't Too Proud: The Life and Times of the Temptations" opening today at Broadway's San Francisco Golden Gate Theater, One Taylor Street. Um, the show is from November 9th through December 4th, and there are so many different times. I mean, it's like, name that time. We probably have a show at that time. <laughs> so, you know, there, yeah, so people can, you know, find a time, a matinee or evening or day that works for you, and maybe you might be able to go back more than once. And tickets range from 56 to $256, and you can get them at broadwaysf.com. And and you can visit ElijahAhmadLewis.com to find out more about our guest. And his website is just really intriguing. He's got so many projects. Do you want to highlight a project that we can support you on besides this one? Uh, uh, Well, I did just release a single, uh, uh, Brown Sugar, uh, which is Mm -hmm. under my artist, EAL. So you can find that. Everywhere also, uh, EALP60.com or ElijahAmontLewis.com. Uh, yes, I'm very excited about this single. Okay, super duper. Awesome. Well, we will find that and play it. <laughs> Absolutely. All righty. We take a care. Thank you so much for, for the conversation. It's been really lovely, and, and have a wonderful time in San Francisco. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, and I hope to see you at the show sometime. All righty, you take good care. 
Bye-bye. Bye. Peace and blessings. So we are going to close uh, with um, <laughs> Ain't Too Proud to Begs, I'm Losing You, which kind of highlights um, a little conversation afterwards, which is why I like this clip, um, uh, about some of the tensions, uh, the racial tensions that were happening um, at this group's um, heyday. much, um, Elijah, for joining us to talk about ah, Ain't Too Proud to Beg, and um, it's open today, this evening at the San Francisco Golden Gate Theater, San Francisco Broadway Golden Gate Theater. Um, We're going to shift a little bit in the focus. We're going to talk a little bit about a program that's going to be uh, a film screening uh, on Sunday online. Uh, at the San Francisco Main Library African American Center. Um, we're going to be uh, screening Belly of the Beast and, and then having a conversation with um, uh, with two persons, the director and, um, and the principal person um, who um, was the um, – who had the test case. Um, the film, um, Belly of the Beast 2020, uh, is directed by Eric Kahn and uh, Kelly Dimlin and um, and Cynthia Chandler are going to be um, talking about the film once, um, but they're going to give a little opening remarks, but then they're going to, um, uh, you know, discuss the, um, you know, what happened in this film. And what happened in this film is it, it documents the... Uh, uh, the state of California, via its um, prison system, sterilized um, women without their knowledge, and uh, and this was like 20 years ago. And coming forward, um, Kelly Dillon has initiated and written this legislation um, uh, for reparations for these women who. Um, were deprived or denied their ability to procreate because they were surgically sterilized 
again, without their knowledge and, and also without their permission because, you know, quote, they were property of the uh, the state of California via its prison system. And so it's going to be a really powerful program, and uh, you can read more about the um, the event uh, on wandaspicks.com, W-A-N-D-A-S-P-I-C-K-S.com. So I'm going to play... Um, the the title track uh, which Mary J Blige wrote see what you have done to me and and then I'm going to read you what I wrote <laughs> a couple of years ago about the film these women 
without their knowledge and without their permission um, as a form of <laughs> saving society from uh, the birth of other um, citizens that might break the law. So anyway, I uh, I wrote a few things about <laughs> about uh, this particular film, and I'm not sure. Um, I uh, I have a couple of versions of this, and um, I'm going to read the first version, and um, I think it's a little shorter, maybe. Um, <laughs> and it, it starts with. Um, Eugenics, a system of population control seeped in systemic racism and sexism, is an othering of major proportions of the by the politically powerful and elite. Those who maintain and feed the dominant discourse was defeated in California not once but twice. Belly of the Beast, 2020, directed by Erica Kahn, a Peabody and Emmy Award-winning director, tells the more recent story. Produced by Angela Tucker, director of All Kinfolk and all Kinfolk Ain't Skinfolk, is now streaming on POV. It's still streaming on POV. You can, um, I, I don't think it's streaming for free, though, but you can definitely uh, have access to it and and, um, and and watch it there. But you'll be able to watch it, as I mentioned, um, as a part of our programming on Sunday at 2 o'clock, 2 to 4 p.m. Uh, at the African American Center online at the San Francisco Public Library, um, and we're going to be in conversation after we watch the film. Shot over a period of seven years, we meet two amazing warriors, Kelly Dillon and Cynthia Chandler, and many supporting cast who are just as phenomenal. They don't don capes or fly through the air, but they could. We meet women whose stories are represented here, legs dangling from exam tables before tucked into stirrups, women who risk retaliation to tell this important story. Sunny California until 1979 was the capital of eugenics. 20,000 people were sterilized forcefully and through deceptive procedures. If a person was poor or insane, criminal or unfit, Mexican or black, the state facilitated the person's sterilization. Yep, there were big bucks in decreasing the population of unfavorables. The Central Valley in California is home to the largest women's prison in the world. At the height of the sterilization, of height of sterilization, there were two prisons, the other Valley State Prison for Women. Both institutions tilled the epicenter for this insidious secret mission to systemically rid the state of less favored populations, black women, poor women, Latinx women, indigenous women. All of this might have remained unknown except for one woman, Kelly Dillon. Kelly Dillon, now City of Los Angeles Commissioner, Co-Chair of Empowerment Congress Southeast and Executive Director of the nonprofit Back to the Basics, complained of pain in her uterus and the doctor scheduled her for exploratory surgery. He told her that he saw cysts, but if there were any malignant cells, he would remove it. Later, when Kelly awakened from the procedure, the doctor told her everything was fine. A domestic violence survivor, Kelly left behind two young sons during her 15-year sentence and dreamed of returning home to an opportunity to start again, raise a family. When she started to lose weight and began having menopausal symptoms and she didn't get any answers from prison medical staff, she wrote a letter to Justice Now. Cynthia Chandler, co-founder and lead attorney, subpoenaed Kelly's medical records and had the heartbreaking task of reading medical records to Kelly detailing what happened to her. Kelly's dreams were shattered. There was no reason for the sterilization other than the California Corrections medical contractor's decision to save the state money by decreasing this woman and other women's ability to bring children into the world. There was this unspoken narrative that certain women were not fit mothers and that there was a tax savings to sterilize these women while everything was out on the table. A couple of snips and it's done. A nurse who set up an OBGYN clinic at CCWF said, It was as if these women were felines who were being spayed, not human beings with rights and feelings. 
One doctor would almost forcibly make women agree to sterilization if they were having a second or third child. His nurse response gathering the signatures. This woman stated after the bill's passage ending the practice that she thought sterilization was useful and did not regret her role in a process that left hundreds of women unable to bear children. Justice now launched an investigation and letters from incarcerated women spoke of requests to sign medical forms while cut open and in various states of consciousness. One woman shared being forced to have a C-section when she was perfectly capable of vaginal childbirth. Why would I want to have major surgery, she says. While in the operating room, she was asked to sign a form agreeing to the tubal ligation. And medical records just as now in the Center for Investigative Journalism uncovered there were tubal ligations connected to these C-sections, which cost the state of California hundreds of thousands of dollars. The interviews and surveys sent into CCWF and the stealth meetings on the prison yards were documents exchanged where documents exchange hands that organizers like Justice Now and California Coalition for Women Prisoners to learn the forced sterilization was bigger than the organizers had imagined. We hear the voices of these women and their stories read aloud in the film narrative. I met some of these women myself on legal visits, legal advocacy visits with CCWP. One woman said the doctor told her a hysterectomy would help her headaches. She suffered from mental illness. One loses her agency. She dons an orange garment, and a number replaces her name, which made it hard for the team at Justice Now to identify the scope of the travesty given the anonymity of the victims. The Center for Investigative Journalism and Justice Now, an organization located in Oakland which has on its board women who are incarcerated and also the formerly incarcerated, pushed the state of California legislature to ratify and enforce new legislation to stop CDCR from sterilizing incarcerated women. Corey Brown from the Center for Investigative Journalism says in Reveal, of the 144 tubal legations performed on inmates from fiscal years 2005 to 2006 to 2012 to 2013, Auditors found more than a quarter were done without evidence of the required consent. Fifty white women, 53 Latino women, 35 black women, and six women classified as other received the procedure. All of them had been jailed at least once, most read as less than a high school level. Governor Jerry Brown signed Bill SB 1135, September 25, 2014. New legislation specifically including prisons in the eugenics ban. Yet in the federal prison system here in California and elsewhere in the country, not to mention the other state prisons, sterilization is still happening. To sterilize a person is to shred said person's humanity and for it to continue in other legislative bodies like the federal government makes one question what kind of beasts are these in these municipal offices? As California looks to establish a commission on reparations for African-American descendants of enslaved people, the person sterilized should be compensated monetarily. Kelly is currently supporting California Reparations Bill AB3052, which provides justice and compensation for the survivors. It did pass. So since it passed, it is evidence that California has a willingness to acknowledge the medical injustices, the medical malpractices, and the lack of respect for human life for people of color, in which they have suffered at the hands of people who were supposed to preserve it and protect it. The criminal legal system needs to step up and reform its still inadequate medical care for women, especially women who are aging and now at risk for COVID-19. Belly of the Beast closes with a brief look at the fallout from the legislative victory four years, well, now more than four years ago, I guess it's six years ago, um, because I wrote this in 2021, I think. (laughs) Um, 
Felino, I'm not sure about that, four years ago, maybe five years ago, now incarcerated women at CCWF are denied reproductive care or made to wait unnecessarily for treatment. It is appalling the taxpayers pay for the health care for politicians, most if not all able to afford their own coverage, while for the more vulnerable among us, there are no services. Nonetheless, this win against the powerful CDCR is encouraging and can serve as a blueprint for systemic change. And so I um, just wanted to share that with you. And, um, yeah, and, and I really encourage everyone to um, to be in the room for the um, for the program on Sunday. It's going to be really amazing um, to hear from Kelly and from uh, Cynthia. You know, these are two two really um, uh, wonderful women who are our heroes. You know, and they're living, and um, and their story, the story of 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 uh, of what happened, you know, what what Kelly survived, and and the work that organizations that advocate for those people in our community who are not visible. When you are in prison, you are not visible unless somebody goes to you. Like we don't have prisons in our communities, so if someone goes to prison, um, for the most part, they are out of sight and out of mind. So, um, so definitely um, encourage everyone uh, to attend uh, this um, screening and film discussion. Um, really, really important. All right. So let's see. Um, I don't have a a song <laughs> queued up to play. So um, let's see um, if I can find something quickly. Um, I like this one. We have Alice Walker. We have a beautiful mother, um, and this is Jennifer for reason it's a really short piece